All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. That's where we will be this morning. That'll be our main text. You guys really cut down on my ability to pace. This is, and I, man, your hand, my hands hurt watching you do that. Do your hands hurt? Oh, man, this is making my palms sweaty. Gross. All right, so um, today we have a very meta sermon. This is a sermon about why sermons are important with the goal, the goal of making you all excited about sermons so you'll go out and preach sermons. So this is a sermon about sermons about why you should preach sermons. We are in a series called Why This, in which we are exploring why, it, why the things that we do matter. Why, why do Christians spend so much time talking about repentance and, and baptism? Why do we spend so much time on teaching? If you think for a moment about how much teaching goes on here in a given week, we have Sunday school for an hour. We have, uh, during the service, we have the sermon period, and then, of course, the, the communion meditation. We have uh, small churches that most of them happen on Sunday night, and there's some kind of study that's going on in those, in those small groups. We have Wednesday night Bible study. We have men's uh, Bible study and women's Bible study. That's like a lot of study, not just the fa- not to add to the fact that if you show up in my office, it is very probable that you will leave my office with a book. Because that's, that's how it is. And I'm always harping, did you read your Bible this week? Have you read this passage this week? We're, we're always talking about content, about study. Why does it matter? Why does it matter so much? And that's my aim. All of it uh, centers around this, this one text, this one book. In fact, if you, if you were to go to the, the I don't know, Calum, um, Western and take just a class, just a class on religions. You would open your textbook on just world religions and you would find there's a section called the people of the book. That's what we're called, the people of the book. Because our whole lives, all of our thoughts and all of our, all of our thinking and all of our living is supposed to hopefully emanate from this text when we are always asking the questions, well, what does the Bible have to say about that? So really even before we get into the question of why preaching and why teaching, we might have to ask the question, why the Bible? Why the Bible? Why does the Bible matter so much? Well, I don't have time to talk about the miraculous reliability of the scriptures, about how it is written by various authors over a span of thousand years in various countries, in different times and places, during wars and famines and peacetime and, and, and travels, and all of this brought together into one place that has miraculous uh, consistency and authority. If you, if you were to study for any length of time, the transmission of scriptures, how you have a Bible today, there is no other word for it other than miraculous. It's power to transform lives. I'm standing proof. It's miraculous. It's power to change the world. There is no text, in the, whether you love the Bible or whether you, you hate the Bible and think it's all rubbish, there is no text, no book in the whole world that comes even close to both the power, the authority, and the consistency, especially speaking about the ancient world as the Holy Scriptures. But we always ask the question, what does Jesus have to say about that? Right? What did Jesus have to say about that? And when Jesus, there's a story um, in, in Luke, it's, it's funny to me being a preacher, um, 
And Jesus is preaching. He, he, he's, he's, he's teaching and he's preaching. And all, it's with power. People are amazed and they're, they're awestruck by his authority and how great he is at it all. And then a woman shouts out. Let me read it. A woman shouts out, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Which is a weird thing to shout out in the middle of a sermon. And I love Jesus because he's not phased by this. If somebody shouted out that to me, I would just, I'd have to stop and process that. I'm assuming this woman was a mother. And she was saying, your mama's pretty proud of you, isn't she? I think that's kind of what's happening there. Blessed is your mom because, man, you're, in, you're, you're incredible at this, and so she must be blessed. And Jesus, I love Jesus because he, he doesn't bat an eye. Like, right back at it, and only the way that Jesus can, he says this, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, there are two implications there, I think, that are very important for this morning's study. When we begin with the question of why the Bible, why the Bible? Because Jesus called it something. He called it the word of God. In, in Timothy, in another place, it's called theonostos. God breathed. It's the breath of God. We read over and over again in the Old Testament, and the word of the Lord came to me, and he said, and the word of the Lord came to me, and he said, and the word of the Lord came to me, and he said, and when Jesus refers to the Old Testament, and when Jesus refers to his own teaching, he calls it this, the word of God. So why the Bible? Because it's the word of God. If you want to draw near to God, if you want to follow God, if you want a relationship with God, then you need his words. You need to follow them. You need to keep them. You need to love them. You need to harbor them. You need to keep them in your heart. Why the Bible? Because it's the word of God. But I want you to notice what he says there. He doesn't say those who read the word of God. He says those who hear the word of God, which implies something very important, doesn't it? It implies that somebody is speaking the word of God. Somebody is declaring it. Somebody is preaching it. Somebody is teaching it. And somebody has the blessedness of hearing it and being transformed by it. And so Jesus is assuming that there are going to be a whole lot of preachers, a whole lot of people going out and proclaiming. In fact, that's what he says in the last chapter of Matthew. He says, go therefore into all the world, uh, baptizing, making, go into all the world, make disciples, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. If you've made a disciple, then first you've preached the gospel to that person, right? They have heard the gospel, and they've been transformed by it. And then once they've been transformed by it, you go on and you teach them how to keep it. You teach them deeper truths and more knowledge so that they could keep that word safe, so that they could preserve their relationship with God. And so he's assuming that not just the Jordans of the world, but all y'all would be out there preaching. We read this in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. In the beginning of Acts, you have uh, the church growing and it's flourishing, but it's only flourishing in Jerusalem. And God doesn't want just one place. He wants it to go into all the world. Remember, I just talked about that in Matthew 28. And so what does he do? He strikes the church with persecution. And he scatters them. And we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Preaching the word of God. Now that, that isn't then just the apostles. In fact, we read that the apostles actually stayed in Jerusalem. The scattered people are just the average Christian. Just the men, the women, the, the housewives, the, the craftsmen, everybody who had been scattered from Jerusalem. And what do they do as they go? They proclaim the word 
of God. And this is very important because I think that we have this idea that it's Jordan's job to preach, which is in part true, but it's also all of our job to preach. Now I'm going to use two words interchangeably several times throughout this, this series or throughout this sermon. One is, is preaching and one is teaching. The Greek word for preaching just means to declare something. It means to say it out loud. If you share with somebody when you're at school, Owen, when you're at school and you share the gospel with somebody, you have preached the word to that person. If you are at home with your children, Tara, and you share with them the gospel, you have preached your wor- the word of God to your children. You have declared the word. We are all to be preachers. It doesn't take great in-depth knowledge to be a preacher. You just have to be able to say the gospel. You need to be able to tell the story of Jesus. That's all you need to be able to do. On the other hand, teaching is something that happens inside the church. and It's not so much focused on, on outside, but within the church. In the church, we teach, and that requires a depth of knowledge. You need to know the, the ins and outs of teaching, but both are essential, and both are important. Now, let's look at our text this morning. This is from 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now I want to spend some time uh, laboring over this text so that we might understand it better. I want you to notice how fiercely doctrinal this very first verse is. I charge you in the presence of God. In fact, if we were to talk about what the gospel looks like, this is a very succinct version of it. It begins by talking about the presence of God, the presence of God which Paul seems to assume he has, but also the presence of God which is going to happen when Timothy receives this letter, which is a revelation of two doctrines that we hold very important. That is God's omnipresence, that is God is everywhere, and God's Um, omniscience, that is, God knows everything. We studied this in depth in our men's Bible study this past week, and it was uh, deeply uh, convicting, as as Andy can testify, that we talked about how everything you do is before the face of God. You can't hide from him. Every single thing you do is before the face of God. Every word you speak at home to your kids, every word you speak at home to your spouse, everything that you do in silence when everyone's gone to sleep, everything and action that you take when you're at work, whether people are watching you, around you or not, every show you watch, every feeling you feel, every single thing that is done in heaven and in earth is done before the face of God. He is standing right next to you. That's intense, isn't it? And that's why what follows next is that Jesus Christ comes next, and what is he going to do? We have, he is going to be the judge of the living and the dead. This is what, this is what uh, Paul proclaims to the city of Athens in Acts chapter 17. He says that in former times, God overlooked our ignorance. He, he overlooked it, but now the time has come because God has fixed a date by which he will judge the world in righteousness. 
there is judgment that will come because everything that has been done has been done before the face of God. And what do we have next? Jesus is going to come and he's going to bring that judgment because he is coming again. His second coming, his appearing, and he is bringing about his kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. We did a, a lengthy series about that a month or two ago, and that'll be on, that's online, so if you want to look it up and study more about that, it's there. So what we have here, then, is a very succinct version of the gospel. If you say to me, I don't know what to say, I can't preach, I don't know how to declare anything, memorize this verse right here, and you're well on your way. God is everywhere. Jesus is coming to judge He is coming again, and he will set up his eternal kingdom, and so he has appointed for you the opportunity for salvation. Will you repent and believe in the good news? You all can do that. In fact, you are all responsible for that. Like I said, everything is done before the face of God. All of those things that we do, but all of those times that our mouths were silent. All of those things that we did not do. So Paul says, preach. Preach the word, preach this gospel, share it with others. We, we say around here, share Jesus. And, and this is, I really love it as kind of a, a vision statement, or purpose statement, whatever you want to call it. But it has a danger, because it's so pithy, it has the danger of becoming just something we say. And what lays at our feet is the question, does Portage, does Kalamazoo, does your workplace, does your family, do they know you as someone who is constantly about sharing Jesus sharing the gospel, preaching it and proclaiming it with those two great tensions of love of God and the truth of God's word. Because you notice it doesn't say preach your word, preach your opinions, preach your thoughts. I don't care about your thoughts. I don't care about your words, right? We care about the scriptures. Put the Bible in someone's hands. That will change a life. Your thoughts about the Bible won't. This will And so we take this Bible and we we share it with everyone that we can. And so the danger here, I think, is that we can become very insular in our thinking. And this is dangerous, especially for for me, because you will never meet a preacher who says, I'm not too worried at all about the health and growth of our church. We're all worried about this all the time. And the danger can come when when we begin to think more about how we can grow Oakland Drive. That's not the mission. That's not the goal. The mission and the goal is to see souls saved. To see people receive the gospel, be transformed by the gospel, and come into a new and living relationship with God and his church. If they live closer to West K, send them to West K. If they live closer to here, bring them here. That's not what is important. What is important is that the kingdom expands. That needs to be the beating heart of every single Christian in this room. It is the reason you exist. Right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul talks about we've been given this great treasure and he's, God has taken this treasure, this treasure that is above all other treasures, the word of God, the treasure of salvation, and he has placed it inside of this weak, fallible, ignorant clay jar. He has placed the greatest treasure in all of you And he says, now take it out and share it. Share Jesus. Why does preaching and teaching matter? Why is it so important that we declare? Because there are lives that are at stake. The scriptures make exclusivistic claims. This is why we fight about it. 
Because it says not everyone is right. Not all churches on Oakland Drive are equal. Some teach correct doctrine and some teach false doctrine. And if you are caught up in false doctrine, your life is in danger. Your soul is in danger. Doctrine matters so much. Teaching and preaching matters so much because it is how we come to know God. And if we come through a false door, then we don't belong to him. And so what I want us to do today is not only to get fired up and be desirous about going out and preaching the word, but also to see how serious we need to take, we need to take teaching. Why does preaching matter so much? Because people make that foolish claim, only God can judge me. I saw that this week. I've talked about this before. It's so dumb to me. Yes, that is absolutely correct. Only God can judge you and everything you have done is before his face and he will judge you. And that is a fearsome thought, a very sobering and serious thought. And that's why preaching and teaching matters. Paul says to the Galatian church, he says, as I've said before and I say again now, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what he receives, let him be accursed. Let me, let me, let me put it this way. When you invite people to church, and I, I hope that you do that, um, when you invite people to church, I'm gonna, I'll put it this way, how do you sell it? How do you sell it? Oh man, the music is so amazing. Oh, the coffee is so hot. The preacher is bearded and beautiful. Uh, he's eloquent too, he's wise, he's... The fellowship is so real, you know? All those things are, are fine, um, and hopefully some of them are true, not the bit about me. But hopefully those things are true. I want them to be true of us. But we could have the worst singing, the most boring preaching, and the coldest, most Gordon food service coffee that you can get. But if we have true doctrine in God's eyes, we are faithful and better than a church that has all of those wonderful accoutrements and yet does not teach strong doctrine teaches false doctrine or doesn't teach doctrine at all. You see, what you should be sharing with people is that we are a place that is deeply rooted in the scripture and is seeking with all of our hearts to know the truth and to share the truth with others. That's the greatest selling point of any church ever. I know a place where the word of God is preached and you can come and hear it be transformed by it, and take it out and be a preacher yourself. It's the greatest selling point. That is what we should be about. That's what Paul is trying to get at here with Timothy. This is why it's been handed down to us, because teaching and preaching matters so much. In fact, it says if we teach and preach false things, if, we, if, we, if our doctrine is not in keeping with the word of God, again, the word of God, not our words, not our thoughts, not our opinions, we are called waterless springs, and this is Second Peter chapter four. Waterless springs, blasphemers, sensual. Sorry, Second Peter chapter two. False, irrational animals, foolish. It compares us to demons. It compares us to Sodom and Gomorrah. It compares us to Balaam. Now, I, I don't know how biblically literate all of you are, but you don't want to be compared to those three groups of people, right? You've at least seen some like scary movies, demons. Not good, don't be those guys, right? 
That's what's happening here. The scriptures are saying if you're preaching and teaching falsely, then this is what you are like. You're like these people. And so teaching and preaching matters because false doctrine from you or to you can kill you. It is like going to see a surgeon who has never cut on anyone before, never went to medical school. Would you do that? Would you let somebody who doesn't know anything about medicine prescribe things to you? How many, how many years of school did you do, Brad? Eight years of school to be able to prescribe medicine. Because prescribing bad medicine will do what, Brad? Kill you. Glad the, the eight years got that into his mind. Don't do the wrong medicine. Eric's also in here somewhere, I think. Um, but we don't feel this way about preaching and teaching. Why not? What's of more value, your life or your eternal life? We need to take our teaching, our preaching, our doctrine, the sermons you listen to, the books that you read, you need to take that as seriously as you would take the medication that Brad hands you over the counter. And you follow those instructions, don't you? Because you don't want to die. The same is true of preaching and teaching. We tread dangerous ground, and and I'm worried about this, guys, I really am, because we live in a pluralistic culture that has drilled into us. Everyone's idea is the same. They're all equally valid. They're all equally valid, yes, in the sense that we are very glad we live in a place that people can say dumb things and the Gestapo doesn't knock down your door, right? We're glad for that. But they are not equally valid in the the sense that they are all equally true. The Bible says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Also, this pluralistic culture has ingrained into us this idea, and it has silenced the church. It has convinced us that we don't have a message that is life and death. And so we keep silent. Because we don't want to be hateful, we don't want to be bigots, we don't want to be uh, people who aren't loving like Jesus. In fact, we get this thing thrown at us, right? What's the, what's the best known verse in America these days? Judge not, lest ye be judged. Right? So all you Christians who are out there thumping Bibles, silence, right? Don't let them do that to you. Because that's a bad reading. It's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is saying, don't judge with a judgment that you are not willing to have turned on you. It's about hypocrisy. Because earlier in in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, this is before Jesus gets to the judgments, all within the same sermon, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, if your righteousness does not extend, is not better than the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will never, highlight that word, never enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is fighting with all of these Pharisees and these Sadducees, these religious leaders and these just religious people. And, and what we often think when we're reading this is that Jesus is, he's, he's thinking that they're, uh, these guys, you know, they're, they're judgmental and they're not loving enough and, oh man, they don't know anything about grace. Not true at all. Jesus looks at them and he says, you need to be more righteous than these guys. Because the righteousness that they have is all exterior. It's all, it's all just to show off. 
What you need is the righteousness that is exterior, but also penetrates the heart interior so that you can be changed from within and without. It isn't good enough just to say, I don't cheat on my wife. If your eye is constantly looking at other people or that you have in your heart the ability to treat a woman as though she is an object, both of those are equally wrong and equally sinful, and your righteousness needs to outstrip both of them. That's the message of Jesus. He doesn't make things easier for you. He says, work harder. Strive after true things, true teaching. So, these are so important. Why is preaching and teaching matter? Why do we do so much of it? We do so much of it because we want to preserve and protect ourselves we should be praying always when you pray, um, the end of the, prayer, the, the Lord's prayer is um, deliver us from the evil one. Remember that? You pray, God, deliver us from the evil one. Don't let the wiles of Satan, don't let the powers of this world interfere in our lives and, and break us down. You should also pray, God, preserve my doctrine. Keep me from the false path and keep me on the true path because the true path is that which leads to God. And so we do so much good teaching uh, Because we want you to have that so you can also recognize bad teaching. So how do we recognize bad teaching? There's lots of ways, but I want you to look again at our text here from uh, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Because as Paul says, preach the word, go out and preach that word. He gives us some insight into what should be contained inside that preaching. He says three things. He says reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. To reprove is to make a careful search to look for error or sin. So a good sermon, a good teaching as well, will search us. And it will try to expose a place where we have sin in our life. Or expose some ignorance about a doctrine that we need to have remedied. A good sermon will reprove us. In fact, that's what we read about scripture in in Hebrews chapter Uh, For it says the the word of God is living and active. It isn't just a dead word. It isn't just words that were written by somebody to somebody else a long time ago. No, uh, 2 Timothy here is today speaking to you. It is living. It is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides the soul and the spirit, the joints and marrow. It discerns thoughts and intentions of the heart. When you open up scripture, if scripture doesn't cut you, you have not read it rightly. The scriptures indicate that those who are truly in God's way, those who are truly seeking uh, doctrine, are truly asking for God to correct them. They love, we read this in Proverbs all over the place, the wise love correction. The unwise love to correct. See the difference? God wants to correct us because every single one of us, me included, have areas in our lives that need correcting. I constantly am listening to sermons. And asking, God, show me where I have gone wrong. Where am I astray? Convict me. That's what we all, we constantly be searching after that. Uh, Jeremiah 10, 24 is a verse I remember memorizing in VBS a long time ago. Correct me, O Lord, but not in your justice. Right? Less in your wrath I am reduced to nothing. This call for God to correct us. In his righteousness. Now the the second thing here to rebuke follows from the first. So we have exposed an area of our life that needs correction. What are we going to do about it? We're going to rebuke it. 
In our culture today, this is probably the piece of it that gets left off the most, isn't it? We don't rebuke people. We say, you know, hey, listen, it, it, every, no one's perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. No one's perfect. And so we don't have any rights. So just, you know, Jesus is love. Pat yourself on the back and go home. That's not what we read here. We are to expose areas of weaknesses, areas of sin, and then we are to rebuke them, change, repent, be transformed. Um, We have a bylaw vote today, and the biggest chunk of that's being added to it is a chunk on church discipline at the end of the, the bylaws. There's, I, I'm sure you all read it, you, so you know about it, which is basically lifted straight from Matthew 18 and um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we just put it in, in the paper. Um, it describes the way in which, if we find out that there is sin in our midst, we deal with it, how conflicts are are dealt with, but especially how, how sin is dealt with. And what I have found puzzling over the years of, of being in church ministry and working in churches and working with church leaders, like elders, people who are, who are in charge of things, when I ask the question, I, there's this one time, no. I ask the question, what do we do about this sin in our midst? Everyone just kind of is like, I, I don't know. I'm like, Dude, like Jesus said, exactly, like he laid it out in black and white exactly what we're to do. And whenever I encourage this or, or push on it or say, we need to go through this, people look at me like I'm crazy. No, the scriptures say we are to hold one another accountable. As iron sharpens iron, right? We will not become sharp. We will not become true Christians. We will never receive correction that will lead us to righteousness if we don't both expose our weaknesses and then rebuke them. We need, we need correction. A good sermon, a good teaching will not only expose it, but it will call it out for what it is and say we need to change, we need to repent. Finally, we have this, to exhort. To exhort. Now this is similar to encourage, but not quite. It isn't just to pat someone on the back, but it is to say that I find that there are, I run into two kinds of Christians very often. I find I run into these people who say that they're Christians, and yet there is never any reproving and there is never any rebuking. Everything is okay. Uh, the Bible, you know, it's a good guide, but it isn't the word of God. And you can always tell the difference between somebody who believes the scripture is the word of God and who isn't based on where they're lenient and where they're strict. And then I have the other side over here of Christians who have heard the reprovement, who have received the rebuke, but have never accepted the exhortation. They've never accepted the forgiveness of God. See, God isn't wanting us to wallow in our weaknesses, and he doesn't want us to become like people that are self-flagellating, like we're constantly, oh, woe is me, I'm a terrible Christian, I'm a terrible person, I sin all the time, I'm just awful, I'm awful, I'm awful. No, God wants to expose our weaknesses, correct our weaknesses so that we can grow and encourage us to salvation. The word of God makes us wise unto salvation. It transforms us for salvation. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says this, For there is now no condemnation. Did you hear that? You know what that means? No con- Who can condemn you? No one can condemn you. 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who have received the reprovement, those who have accepted the rebuke, who have, who have accepted it and repented, there is now no, no, no con- condemnation. In fact, it's so important in Romans chapter 8 that Paul says it as his sort of thesis statement, and then he ends with this. How, or he who did, that is God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not graciously give us all things. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who can condemn. If God has said, you are just, who can condemn you? Who's left to condemn you? No one, right? That's it. You don't get to condemn you. No one gets to condemn you. You have now been declared righteous. You have been justified. He says, who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed at this moment interceding. That means that God, Jesus is speaking to God on your behalf right now. Who shall then separate us from that love? Who shall separate us from that love? But we need good teaching, good preaching. The content of our teaching, of our preaching, should be to reprove Uh, to correct, and to exhort. That's what good teaching looks like. And if you find in your, uh, as you read books, or if you find as you um, are listening to sermons online, or if you find an error in me or a teaching here, uh, you have every right to call it out. Not in the middle, please know, blessed is the womb, and that's weird. Um, But that's something we're constantly working on. We're constantly trying to do better, to be better, to be closer To the word of God. And so that's what I call you to look for. As um, we come to a conclusion this morning, I want to leave with a text that's kind of haunted me. Um, It has reproved me. It is from Ezekiel chapter chapter 3, if you you, uh, want to write it down. It begins with verse 17. It says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, so whenever the word of God comes to this guy, to Ezekiel, you shall give them, that is, you shall go out and give them the warning you received. If you say to the wicked, you shall surely die, or I'm sorry, if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked of his wicked way in order to save his life. That's the content of your word, isn't it? You're out there saving lives. Bringing people to Jesus, bringing people to salvation is saving a life. That wicked person will die for his iniquity, but the blood I will require at your hand. If you know a word from God and that word speaks to the situation that a person is in and you fail to preach that gospel, the blood of that person Required from our hands. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you shall be delivered. We're we're responsible, guys. We're responsible. You have the gospel that the world needs to hear. 
You have the word of God that the world needs to hear. Blessed are those who hear the word of God. Presumes that somebody is out there speaking the word of God. And it isn't me alone. It is all of us out there proclaiming the word of God. I entreat you. I exhort you. I I plead with you to not let this share Jesus be just something we talk about. But let it be something that permeates our being, our minds, our hearts, our souls, the content that we put into our, our minds. Let it, let it fill us so that always we are prepared. You notice that's what he said to Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready at all times to declare the word of God, for the word of God is wise, brings wisdom unto, unto salvation. It will save if you preach it. It will save if you preach it. As we come to a conclusion this morning, we offer an invitation. Uh, we offer an invitation for baptism. The, ba- the baptistry is actually nicely temperatured. Um, if you have not been baptized, if you've not been immersed for the forgiveness of your sins, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I am, we are available to do that this morning. Uh, if you need prayer, um, Ken will be down here to, to pray with you. Maybe Randy will be down here too since he's free from base control. A patrol. If you need anything, we ask you today to make a decision. Make a decision for the gospel. Don't let today go um, not answering God's call. Let's stand and sing.